Hey everyone, and welcome to the Scientist Podcast. I can't tell you how much I've been looking forward to having today's guest on the show. He's the Chief Scientist for the Planetary Society, head of the Light Sail Program, and more recently, the author of a number of children's science books. He spent a number of years working in NASA, and very excitingly for those of a certain age, i.e. mine, can count Bill Nye the Science Guy as a colleague and friend. I'm extremely lucky to be able to introduce Dr. Bruce Betts. Dr. Betts, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. So today I read your book, The Super Cool Space Facts. Given its intended audience, I accept I'm perhaps a little old for, but I was blown away by two things. The first is how much of both matter and energy are quote unquote dark, but also your quite infectious enthusiasm for communicating planetary science. Is planetary science something that is continuously surprising, even after a number of years at the cutting edge of the field? Oh, definitely. That's part of what makes it so interesting is the fact that we're always learning. It's uh, by its very nature an exploration science. And as we continue to explore more, we continue to get surprised. Uh, Nature keeps doing that. And so we think planets are a certain way and then something new gets discovered and there are new mysteries and new exciting things to learn. Does it feel as if the goalposts have shifted? Or is it an exciting thing because you think, well, this is kind of what we're trying to do. We're trying to find out more. And as part of that, things are going to change. It keeps it exciting no matter what. So, I mean, I think science and planetary exploration has a natural evolution towards changing and learning something new. So the fundamentals get layered like a stratigraphic record in a geological setting. And so you, you build a base that's unlikely to change, but then everything at the top is uh, is up to change and exciting interpretation. What drives the change? Is it technology improving and us just having more access to new information? Or is it just that we think about the information we have differently? In planetary science, it's new information, typically. Not always, but it's fundamentally experimental. Although then when you get data, it can be compared to models. So both like other areas of science, both portions play in, but it's usually a new observation, uh, whether it be new images or literally getting a spacecraft to a body for the very first time or improved technology, as you say, is uh, is an important part of it. So both spacecraft instruments and uh, ground-based and space-based telescope instruments are always improving and that technology is allowing us to make new discoveries. How did you find yourself particularly interested in space? It's something that's so fascinating in an obvious way. And everyone, it seems, seems to have a flirtation with it because it is so interesting. How did you find it to be the thing that captured you in a professional way? It captured me from when I was a kid. So I actually witnessed the last launch of the Apollo 17, of uh, the Apollo program with Apollo 17. And so I remember looking up in the moon and thinking, wow, there are people up there. Uh, And then when Viking and Voyager in the 70s started returning images, I was just captivated, again, for for whatever reason, found it very interesting, exciting, wanted to pursue looking at pictures of of planets, and then kind of found the way to most likely pursue that and never found anything that diverted me more. So I continued into that field. I have to ask about dark matter. Because, and I say this as someone without any knowledge of dark matter. You're not the only one. <laughs> well, this is, this is what I'm about to ask. It's sort of some very high percentage of the matter in the universe. My understanding from your book is that we sort of need that energy and that matter to make the calculations make sense, given what we understand to be happening. How do we know dark matter or dark energy 
is one thing to the degree that that's the understanding. Well, it doesn't have to be one thing, particularly the dark energy and the dark matter could be, uh, are likely different processes. Right. And are we confident that dark matter is a quote-unquote single form of matter? Or are we open-minded about what we're calling dark matter, potentially being a number of different things, the accumulation of which makes the calculations adhere to our current understanding of the universe? Yeah, I think it, it, we're certainly open to whatever it may be, whether it's one thing or more than one thing. People are pursuing different ideas. All we know now is we see its effects in the things like rotations of galaxies that would we would see a different rotation if they had only as much of the visible matter we see. You have to have something mysterious. <clears throat> so they called it dark matter because we can't see it. And then dark energy, they called dark energy accelerate had a dark matter. So, um, so they had a nice matching set. But that dark energy is, uh, is implied by the expansion of the universe and the rate at which it's expanding. And things are going faster than we would expect from what we see. So they're both mysteries. They're both based on observations, but they're both things that we don't know what's causing it. But we know something, something. And by thing, I mean, in the broadest sense, it may not like the dark energy may not be a thing per se in common parlance. Dark matter probably is, and there are some thoughts of it. We don't know what they are, but they're fascinating. I mean, I think that characterizes so much of planetary science, just the mere distance between us and galaxies millions of light years away. Um, and until more recently, the planets are in our own solar system means that there's sort of a natural sense of mystery there. We can see oh, them and yeah. engage with them in one level, but not entirely. I think that's part of what makes space so fascinating to people. It's the out there, the mystery, the... We can see it, but we don't understand it. We can't see it very well. Maybe we can get a spacecraft to it. Maybe we can build a better telescope. Uh, and so it's, it's all part of the process. Do you find that that natural mystery lends itself to an enthusiasm amongst the public? I'm thinking about niche or less obviously exciting areas of science and science communicators potentially having a more difficult job than trying to communicate something that is so cool. Yes, you're definitely right. Uh, there's a general interest in, in space by a lot of people. That's why in my uh, main job you talk about working for the Planetary Society, the Planetary Society is all about connecting people with space exploration and getting them engaged. And there's a natural audience, even from when people are young, they tend to like things like space and dinosaurs and space <laughs> and so, uh, that often continues so yes it's an easier job that if you're trying to explain something that people are not as inherently enthused about have you seen there have been a couple of space movies that captured the interest of the public in a, the recent years the one the name escapes me ron gosling played the lead and they were trying to get to space it was the apollo mission that got to the moon la la land i believe <laughs> la la land exactly Exactly. Now, yes, there's the story of uh, Neil Armstrong's story, I believe. Do you find watching sort of popular culture around space an interesting exercise, particularly as someone who works in space and works on the research into space? Do you have a different relationship to that film than, say, I would? Probably. I, I'm of two minds. On the one hand, anything that gets people excited about space is good, because then you can take them down the more realistic paths. But on the other hand, I get very frustrated with the lack of realism in a lot of space movies. Even things, I mean, some things you, you, you I, I forgive. You're really doing science fiction, you're doing uh, time travel even, 
or the highs, you have to forgive some things, but it just amazes me how with just a little consultation and a small change in a movie, they can make it more realistic. So that part frustrates me. But again, overall, anything that excites people about space excites me. Well, that's, that's the really interesting thing here. You're sort of stuck between, on the one hand, you want to communicate space, but equally, it's not something that needs to be sort of overcooked to be exciting, right? The very nature of it. Certainly what I think. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that's absolutely right. And potentially you also have this lack of clear distinction between what is science fiction and what is a representation of space. Because I imagine your job, you'd prefer to be explaining sort of to wide-eyed members of the public about space rather than having to in some way say, well, it doesn't quite work like that with a hint of apology in your voice. No, you're exactly right. That's, that's the situation I end up in. No, I'd much rather I find the actual, um, the discoveries we make, the bizarre worlds that we encounter, even just in our solar system, there's so much excitement and interest there that it is, uh, it is a little hard to back into, well, this movie wasn't really realistic in this way, but it's still really interesting. <laughs> so yeah, it's a challenge. I'm interested in your relationship with scale. You know, when you talk about space and you talk about the universe, it's often quite difficult to get a handle on really what that means. You know, a light year is sort of an impossibly large distance to imagine. Do you find when you're communicating science, you have, to, you have a way of trying to communicate scale that leaves an impression in people's minds? I try to present scale in all sorts of different ways. And it's hard enough to, I spend most of my time just trying to convey the scale of the solar system, which is nearly impossible to model in a small way, both the size of objects and the distance of objects. When you start getting into, yes, light years and millions of light years, it gets nearly impossible to convey it. And, but still, um, I try to use analogies as much as possible. Scale analogies that if the earth were the size of a tennis ball, then Neptune's the size of a basketball, that type of thing, which you can go so far, but it, nature very inconveniently made scale very hard to comprehend. So it's a challenge. I can, I like the idea that nature sort of was inconsiderate when thinking about the public communication of... Exactly. Please. <laughs> thought it's kind of like making the movies more realistic if they just make scale <laughs> less weird. On the other hand, scale is also part of what makes space fascinating. Um, it's hard to comprehend, but that inherently makes it interesting that things are so far away and so big and most of space is so very empty. And then the things that pop up are really interesting. I want to talk a little bit about your time at NASA. If for no other reason, the mere name of the institution brings up imagery of exploration in the most human way. Right, right. How did you find your time there and what exactly was your role? I was recruited <laughs> to be, come go there to now, this was NASA headquarters in Washington, DC, and was recruited to go there as uh, something with the somewhat amusing title of disciplined scientist. And uh, rather than a scientist of discipline, I managed the planetary instrument development programs and so managed the competition process, the uh, going out and seeing the amazing instruments that are being developed, some of which now it's wonderful to see that was the early stages of instrument development. Now they're flying on spacecraft. And then I was the uh, program scientist, meaning kind of the top person paying attention all the time to various failed and canceled NASA missions. 
they didn't recruit me that way. Hey, come manage film. <laughs> but it's part of the part of the nature of the game. So I spent three years at NASA headquarters managing programs. Well, that's what I want to ask about. Because a space program, number one, the scale of ambition, but also the amount of money, the amount of complexity of task, the amount of different moving pieces, et cetera, et cetera. Is there an expectation when you go into a mission like that, that there's some high percentage chance of it not coming to fruition? Certainly there is at the very early phases, which is what I happen to be assigned with. And so um, it depends on the mission and how it's crafted and how it's selected. And so a lot of the planetary missions are very well uh, put together. They're, a lot of them now are competitively selected. So the proposers propose them. And so they've done a lot of work. They get weeded out, they get competed. If they get selected and funded, they probably move along uh, ones that are come up come out of the nasa infrastructure is a little more hit and miss and so uh, my my story is that i was assigned as program scientist for the mars airplane program you know the mars airplane program but in the nasa does a lot of great stuff but fundamentally it's a it's a big bureaucracy and things that come up like, hey, let's fly a Mars airplane for the 100th anniversary of the Wright brothers. Oh, by the way, we're going to give you less time than you use on a mission that we know how to fly and we're not going to give enough resources uh, and we're not going to have the funding. So it was kind of doomed at some level from the start. You mentioned NASA in terms of its bureaucracy. Does the fact that NASA can sometimes be bureaucratic at all warm you to private involvement? I'm thinking specifically here of Elon Musk and SpaceX. NASA's NASA's a big bureaucracy, but it is still leads the world in doing deep space exploration. And so SpaceX is doing good stuff, but fundamentally most of what SpaceX has done has been funded by NASA. They work together and SpaceX obviously fills commercial roles as well, which are important for launching all sorts of satellites and they're doing their independent development. But I think what's great is with SpaceX, as well as the um, long-term big aerospace companies, the Lockheeds and uh, Northrop Grumman and Boeing, as well as the new other startups, Blue Origin, is that there's a, it's exciting to have more commercial activity, but still this partnership with NASA in terms of what I'm focusing on, which is getting spacecraft out there and telescopes out there. It's still very much a partnership world because there's fundamentally, there's no commercial incentive to do those things. We do them to learn about the universe, to add knowledge. We have spin-offs of technology, but it's, it's hard to find a compelling, at least so, so far, a compelling financial reason to do those things. So it's still crucial to have the government involved. And then it spins off into other aspects that these companies can use to support commercial space. Yeah, right. Furthering the human project in some meaningful way is difficult yeah, yeah. to incentivize financially. The research you produce is only as good as the way you communicate it. Scientist Studio is an exciting science communication company that brings your research to life through a variety of services. From as little as £59, a summary of your work can be narrated, illustrated and animated, leaving you with an engaging video to share with the world. If that wasn't enough, as a podcast listener, you can get 10% off any Scientist Studio service using the code PODCAST when you order. Simply head to our website or find us on Twitter to get started. 
Speaking of your current role at the Planetary Society, what does being the chief scientist there involve? Mostly a cool title. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, chief scientist at the Planetary Society means that I, well, I do a variety of things and I oversee the credibility police, so to speak. So when we produce things and put them out, I review them to hopefully uh, find any errors or mistakes. I manage our science and technology projects. And so we have everything from uh, small grants, international grants to support mostly uh, advanced amateur astronomers looking for and tracking and characterizing near-Earth asteroids to prevent asteroid impact. So we have projects like that all the way to our largest project, which is the light sail program where we've flown a solar sail uh, spacecraft and Earth orbit. So it's largely science and technology management combined with the educational stuff I do, as well as uh, just uh, gener generally uh, tracking credibility in science. Yeah, I want to pick up that on the light sail project, because the light sail project isn't something that I knew much about, but it's extraordinary. The premise, if I understand it, is that you can launch something into the atmosphere that can then, and now I'm quoting, fly through space with the propulsion provided by nothing but sunlight. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds simple, right? <laughs> Sounds... Yeah, you know, basically, a, a little-known fact, at least in the general world, is that light has momentum. It exerts pressure. So light's pushing on you and me right now, but it's a tiny, tiny, tiny amount. So anything in our normal life, this is an irrelevant fact. But if you go into the near vacuum of space and you have a low mass spacecraft and a big shiny sail, and you control that sail, then you can actually use, you get enough pressure of light to accelerate your spacecraft and to propel it without using chemical propulsion or other methods of propulsion. It's very much an analogy to Earth sailing ships as opposed to motorcraft. And you have some of the same benefits which you don't need fuel, you don't run out of fuel, and it enables various missions. But it's a technology really in its infancy, which is why we got involved in it. And so we flew, uh, currently still flying, the first uh, solar sail spacecraft in a small spacecraft. So a CubeSat in this case, which is about the size of a loaf of bread. And from that loaf of bread, we put out a a 32 square meter sail, which is about the size of a boxing ring. And in this case, it's, it's to prove out that you can do it, you can control it, you can do it in these small spacecraft so that hopefully that will lead to others flying these spacecraft in interplanetary space uh, using solar sail technology. You've just unwittingly landed on the other reason space is so cool. Because as soon as you change the physics just a little bit, you enter a near vacuum as opposed to an atmosphere. Well, yeah. now things like light exerting a pressure or a force have unbelievable implications. For instance, you can sail something just on the back of light. What are the scientific aims at the end of the mission? Yes, yeah, so our test mission was in 2015, and that was uh, purely designed to check out all the spacecraft systems. So it tested the computer and the communication and the deployment of a sail, which is the really non-trivial initial part, is deploying this large sail from a small spacecraft. All of that worked, but we were uh, we took a launch that we were able to get into low Earth orbit. And so kind of this 
roughly where the space station orbits, about 400 kilometers up. And I was actually in elliptical orbit um, that went a little bit lower than that. And although we think of the space station as being in space and being out of the atmosphere, there's still enough particles that if you have a, a low mass spacecraft and a big giant sail that you're flying with, then uh, you end up getting dragged back into the Earth's atmosphere very quickly. And we knew that would happen, which is why we didn't even try to do solar sailing. Uh, so it came back in about a, within a couple weeks of deployment of the sail, just from the drag of the uh, Earth's atmosphere. And then in 2019, we launched LightSail 2, which is what's still up there working. And that was launched to a higher orbit where we still have some atmospheric drag, but where we could actually do solar sailing and demonstrate that we were changing the orbit based upon solar sailing alone. Yeah, it's an interesting distinction between lower orbit, where despite the fact space is a vacuum or near vacuum, there's enough in the atmosphere to drag it back after two weeks. Is the idea that eventually once you get it going post low atmosphere into something yeah. closer to a perfect vacuum, then it can sort of sail indefinitely. Yes, definitely. So we've, we've demonstrated it in Earth orbit because that's what, uh, what, what made sense for testing out the mission, both in terms of communications, in terms of cost, in terms of a launch that we could get. Uh, that's what we did. But the technology is designed for interplanetary space. So it's very analogous to sailing in the harbor as opposed to sailing on the open ocean. It's actually harder to sail in the harbor because you have to keep tacking, you have to keep changing direction or you run into something. Well, in our case, you have to keep changing the tacking, changing the orientation of the sail because we, uh, so we, what we do is every twice in orbit, we change the sail orientation by 90 degrees. When we're headed to the sun, we go edge on so that we're not getting pushed from the light. When we're going away from the sun, then we, we go face on and then we're being pushed by the light. And that way we can demonstrate orbital change. When you, these actually get employed in interplanetary space, you, it's more like just setting your sail and, and go, depending on where you're going, inwards or outwards in the solar system. And in fact, we work with the NASA's NEA scout mission, Near, Near Earth Asteroid Scout, which is a um, twice the size CubeSat, so two loaves of bread, and they're actually planning on trying to go to an asteroid. And so we're sharing our information with them uh, as well as the rest of the world. When you say they're trying to go to an asteroid, is the idea to land on the asteroid and get information? <laughs> no, too tricky. They're doing a flyby of an asteroid. Uh, and then presumably they'll, if, they, if that works, then they can target another asteroid because again, they don't require fuel. So they just have to figure out the complicated orbital dynamics. Right, so in some ways the purpose of the mission is A, is to prove that really you can just on the basis of sunlight sail in some cases indefinitely and in some cases for two weeks. And the second is to get information by doing a flyby of an asteroid. Yeah, so that's what NASA's Neoscout will do. And so that um, will be, yeah, exactly. <laughs> What represents scientific progress here for you in the next five, 10 years when it comes to planetary space? Should we be looking at settling or the possibility of settling on Mars and the moon? Or does that represent tinfoil hat stuff? I wouldn't go that far, but, uh, but 
settling on the Mars, I'd, on Mars is definitely out of the question on that time scale. Uh, settling on the moon, I wouldn't call it settlement, but one, we could could establish lunar bases with humans or uh, at least an orbital gateway, they're calling it, around the moon. Uh, but again, it's, it's tricky. Human exploration is inspirational, but costly <laughs> in all terms, in terms of money, in terms of challenge, in terms of mass, in terms of volume. It's just tricky to keep us pesky humans alive and uh, functional. So it's always, um, it's always more uncertain with the human program as to as things change going forward, not just with the US, but other space programs of what support there will be at what time to go where. But uh, longer term, I'd say these things are plausible, but only the moon at a limited level would be plausible on that time frame. in my opinion. I'm, I'm not always the best at predicting the future. You know, in science more generally, you sort of have your open-ended research, which isn't so much an 18-month timescale, and we're testing this thing. It's just more exploratory. And then you have your slightly more closed-off research, which is, well, let's investigate X with Y and see what happens. How right. much of planetary research is open-ended in this way versus how much is project-based with a set timescale funding for that and results that correlate? It's, it's really a mixture because there's so much different kinds of research that happen. So fundamentally, you've got spacecraft and telescopes that are looking at things either for the first time or with better improved instrumentation, and it is exploratory. Like, let's go there, let's fly by that object, let's fly by that asteroid with Mia Scout that we've never seen before, and let's see what we see. And then develop theories from that and then develop other activities, spacecraft or telescopes or laboratory work or analog sites on the earth to uh, test those theories or refine them or try to explain that new bizarro feature that we just saw on somebody. So it's a combination. They're all, the projects are, they're all limited, but they may be limited in 20 years. And they may start out limited. So Mars Odyssey is an orbiter at Mars that was, I don't remember the original nominal lifetime, but it was probably a couple of years. And it just is past its 19th year in orbit and it's still working. So generally, if you get there and you keep doing good science, then you, they continue to fund it. Because the, the big funding, of course, with the mission is, is the initial build, design, build, launch. And once you get it out there, I tend to maintain them. Right, because the marginal cost of keeping the thing going just isn't that high compared to putting it together. Right, exactly. In your book, you spoke a little bit about sending out signals to the universe fairly indiscriminately to see if we get anything back. Is that something being pursued to see if there's sort of anything out there to send something back? Yeah, there are kind of two issues you've touched on. One is sending something out. And that that is more... That's not done as much, and it's also more controversial because we don't know what we're sending it out to. But getting to the other point, which is generally called SETI, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, or now uh, they refer to looking for technosignatures or biosignatures, um, that's done on a regular basis, and the Planetary Society has actually funded that for a very long time, almost since its beginning. Uh, other groups do as well, particularly the SETI Institute. And, uh, and there's looking for signals, but here's the trick when, one, we have no idea 
how many civilizations are out there, how many are transmitting, et cetera. And we don't know what frequency they're on, what even wavelength part of the spectrum they're in, what type of thing they're doing. So my point is, even though we've been looking for a long time, it's a really big haystack that we're looking for a tiny needle that we don't even know if it exists in the first place. On the other hand, if we find that needle, then it's arguably the most significant scientific discovery in history. So uh, it's, it's a weird field, the field of SETI, because you have decades of no uh, finding nothing, but you can only imply so much from that because it's such a broad field to try to uh, study. Yeah, and that's where scale really becomes significant. Yes. Yeah, it's interesting. You're sort of playing this risk-reward game as such of, well, if you get anything back, it's this most significant discovery in scientific human history, but equally the likelihood of finding something given the limited scope of our ability to do so. And the fact that anything out there may not have the ability nor interest in sending anything back. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate that. And thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. That was Dr. Betts. We were so lucky to have him and we'll be here next week.